this is worth repeating from Texas Public Radio. Real stories told by your neighbors and friends and recorded live over the last couple of years in San Antonio. I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate. We're starting this episode off with a love story told by Heather Armstrong. I was a really ugly kid. (laughs) Clearly that's not the case anymore. (laughs) No, I was really hideously ugly. It started out cute, but then by the third grade, things started to deteriorate really bad. And by fifth grade, wow, awkward phase. Like, you can see from pictures that my nose clearly grew before the rest of my face did. Um, I opted to get a mullet that year. You know, the business in the front, party in the back. I got home and showed my mom my haircut. She was like, oh my God, that's awful. (laughs) No, you look awful. I mean, like tears streaming down her face. But if you'd seen me, you would have cried too. Um, But the worst part about my awkward phase is that I was incredibly tall for an 11 year old. I mean, I was probably this height in the fifth grade, which means I was a foot taller than all the other kids. So you add that and the mullet, no chest, all this stuff going on at the same time and I'm setting the scene for why I didn't have any boyfriends. You get it? You understand what I'm saying? I know some of you are like, boyfriends in the fifth grade, what's up with that? Well, this is like in 1982 in Texas, small town. There's nothing else to do, okay? (laughs) So I was the only one of all my cute, little petite, training bra-wearing friends that didn't have a boyfriend, and I was super bummed about it. And fifth grade was almost over, and everybody had shirts about their boyfriends, and I didn't. And I had my eye on this one particular guy, He was really dumb. He was already failing classes in the fifth grade. Um, He already, he always looked like he was surprised with his mouth wide open like this. But for some reason I thought he was so hot because he was taller than me. I know that doesn't make sense now, it doesn't to me now, but if you understood, I was freakishly tall. And I loved him and I pined away from him and I told everybody I wanted him, Ernie was his name. So three days before school ended, Tiffany came up to me with a note. And it was folded up, put it in my pocket. I quickly opened that note, and it was the greatest thing that had ever happened to me in my life. Dear Heather, will you go with me? I used to tell my mother, I'm going with somebody. She said, where are you going? That didn't make any sense. He's go- I'm going with him. Will you go with me? Yes, with a box. No, with a box. And maybe with a box. You know what that means, right? Well, I knew exactly what it meant, and my heart started just pounding out of my chest. My shirt was going like this, and I was afraid Miss Hankover was going to see it because nothing else was going on there, and I was about to have a heart attack. So I quickly whipped out my pencil, and I checked the box. Yes! Yes, Ernie! I want to go with you! It's the most exciting thing that ever happened to me. So I gave the note back to Tiffany, and for the next three days, I I tried to lock eyes with Ernie. I'm looking at him, and he's not looking at me, and I think nothing of it, because it's, you know, it's been quick, and he probably hasn't gotten the note back. He probably doesn't know. So summer comes, and every summer, I really hated it, because my dad, who's a farmer, would make us work and do hard labor. He He made us plow. And so I would tell everybody, my dad is making us plow. It's child abuse. Do something. But he was paying us a lot of money. The tractor was air-conditioned. It had a kick-ass stereo. 
I'm jamming out to Huey Lewis and the News, you know what I'm saying? But that summer started out great because for the next three weeks, I was daydreaming while I was plowing about Ernie and me and the life that we were gonna have together and like how we were gonna tease each other and we were gonna be like so cute and everybody would know that he was my boyfriend and he was taller than me. It didn't bother me that somehow for those three weeks I hadn't heard from him. I just imagined that, you know, he was probably working for his dad or he was on summer vacation or there was a terrible storm and it knocked a tree down onto his telephone pole and he couldn't call me. That's what happened, right? And then finally I got a phone call from my mom. I mean, my mom got a phone call and she said, hey, it's some party going on. Tiffany's having a birthday party at the pool at two. She wants to know if you can come. What are you talking about? Yes, I can come. Ernie's gonna be there. And we will finally boyfriend and girlfriend in front of everybody. So I got really excited, got my swimsuit on, I got my towel, two o'clock comes along and I'm like, wait a minute, fashionably late, right? So I wait a few minutes and then I walk all the way to the swimming pool and there's a sea of preteens and their swimsuits at the party and there's Ernie and there was Tiffany sitting in his lap. And I was like, oh, hey, what's, what's going on? And Tiffany was smiling at me, not like, hey, Heather, but like, I'm a bitch, Heather. <laughs> I was like, what is going on here? Nobody's saying anything. So I'm like, hey, Ernie, what's going on? And Ernie goes from this to this. <laughs> and Tiffany starts laughing. All of the kids start laughing and they're pointing their fingers at me. I, I didn't know what to do, so I start laughing too. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? <laughs> no, Tiffany says. Why are you laughing? We're laughing at you. Ernie wanted you to go with him and it was a joke. That was a joke letter and you thought it was serious. You're so stupid. And I felt the insides start to collapse. I felt hot, but for some reason I kept smiling and I said, I, I totally knew that. Y'all are stupid. <laughs> I, to this day, don't know how I said that. I don't know how I grabbed that out of me. I don't know what happened. Because inside I thought I was gonna die. But for some reason I pulled myself together and the next few minutes are kind of hazy. I remember seeing myself jump off the high dive, trying to be a badass playing with my friends and all like, did you really think that he wanted to go with you? Like, seriously? And I'm like, no, I've said it for the 15th time, whatever. I remember seeing Ernie and Tiffany playing with each other and teasing each other and laughing at each other and doing all those things that I was supposed to be doing with him, not Tiffany. But I didn't want him to see that I knew that I was a fool, so I kept it up for a while. And then right about the point that I felt like I was gonna be completely dead inside and I couldn't take it any longer, I got my towel and I told everybody, hey, bye, I had a great time. And I skipped out, went home, and then right after I got out of, I, people couldn't see me anymore, I collapsed and cried and cried and cried the whole way home. It was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to me. I know at this point you want me to tell you something profound, like what I learned from this experience and what I know about love and all that crap. No. I wanna know what happened to that asshole. Right? Okay, well, I'll tell you. 
20 years later, I'm recounting this story to someone. They do a little Google search, do a little phone call, and they find out that Ernie's in jail. Boom! The end! Next, another story about a low point. Joel Rivas describes his experience hitting rock bottom. Sometimes in life, you find yourself at the uh, end of a tunnel, looking down, and uh, there seems to be no light coming through. Uh, For me, that was fall of 1996. I was 20 years old. I lived in Dallas, Texas. Um, I worked in uh, restaurants and some bars there. Uh, lots of hours um, trying to piece together uh, money to go screw around with. Um, and uh, earlier that year, my mother had passed away. So I was a mess of a human being. And I compensated the, for the pressure and uh, with drinking a lot and uh, forming a horrible drug habit. Um, so during the course of that summer prior, um, I found myself losing job after job, making poor decisions, going on three-day coke binges and not going into work, and just losing track and getting kicked out of apartments, uh, people's houses, and uh, wearing out welcomes and losing friendships. Uh, so I found myself in that fall living on my brother's couch in his apartment, and he, um, he was at the end of his rope with me. And one day I went to work, the job that I had at the time, and went in and uh, my boss caught me doing coke in the back and and fired me immediately. So I went home and I got home way too early and he knew it. And so um, he started just to braid me like a big brother should and yelling at me and telling me he's tired of me and he's tired of my decisions. And he's at the end of his rope with me and doesn't know what to do. And so around that time the phone rings he goes to the other room to answer it, and it's my dad. And so I can hear him in the other room, and he is uh, just telling my dad the same story about he's tired of my shit and how he's reached the end of his rope and he just doesn't know what to do with me anymore. Uh, my father was a, a Baptist minister. So um, my brother calls me to the other room and says, Dad wants to speak to you. So I go and I sit on the edge of the bed, and I Pick up the phone, I said, hey, dad. And he said, what's, what's going on? And so I start to explain to him. And as I'm doing that, everything is hitting me about how I'm just tired and how I don't like myself and how I just don't like my place in the world. And I start to well up. And my dad says, are you ready to come home? Uh, but it wasn't coming home to um, a certain location It was just finding myself again. So he said, I tell you what, why don't you go down to Mexico City uh, and stay with our family for a couple of weeks, get your head straight, uh, really take time to mourn the death of your mom, um, and get out of Dallas in that element that you're in. And so I did that. On October 6, 1996, I had a big going away party for myself and uh, with my friends. And the next morning, I got on a plane and went to Mexico City. I was supposed to be there for two weeks. I didn't come back to the United States for three and a half years. 
And while I was down there, I stayed with my family and I had people that were around me that were like, um, you know, did you sleep last night? And uh, are you eating? And is there anything we can do for you? And it changed me, it transformed me, and it turned me around. And so I came back to the US and I did life. I did, you know, was doing great. Went to school, uh, got married, had kids, had the career, and skyrocketed in that career and did really well. I worked in business development and healthcare and did really well for myself. But life caught up again and just through poor decisions and allowing work to kind of take over and everything that I did and putting my priorities in the wrong place, um, I just found myself again at the end of that tunnel. And this time it wasn't because of drugs, it just shit was just falling apart. And I found that I was divorced. I got to see my kids a couple times a month. Um, I was in a really well-paying job, um, but I just did not like what I did. And I found it pretty unethical, what I was doing, particularly at that time. And I really hated my place in the world. So um, I went and had a talk with my boss, and he didn't really like that, uh, what I had to say. Um, and, and so some of y'all know this talk, um, and, and so I, and so that was, that was around, um, that was around November of 2016. This is 20 years later. And so come December, early December of 2016, I got called into the vice president of human resources office and sits down and says, Joel, your position with us has been eliminated. And, um, okay, um, expected. And I said, well, let's talk about severance. And he said, no severance. We'll pay you through the end of today. Um, need you to go ahead and go pack your shit, get your laptop, turn it in. Need you out of the building. Um, no severance, no warning. Two weeks before Christmas. And I was just lost. And so, um, packed a bag, got my dog. Um, drove to see my kids, hugged them, kissed them, told them I hope they had a Merry Christmas. And I drove out to Southwest Texas, out to Big Bend and Davis Mountains, and um, I camped out there for two weeks. And decided that if, when I come back, that what I'm going to do is, if I'm going to do anything, I'm, I'm going to make a difference in people's lives. And so... Uh, came back after the new year at the beginning of 2017 and um, started working on um, St. City Culinary Foundation. And one of the programs that we do is called HERD. And it's what I'm most proud of. And we do addiction recovery and sobriety support and mental health support for people in the bar and restaurant industry who, um, who don't have that. And it's growing, and um, we have a support group here in San Antonio. We'll be growing to Austin, and Dallas, and Houston, New Orleans next year um, because it's necessary because there's not a lot for these guys and these gals uh, a lot of times. And there's not a lot of people that they have in their life to say, have you eaten today? And um, have you slept? And uh, it's something I'm very passionate about. Anyone that knows me, 
knows that I am uber passionate about what I do now. And I love what I do. And I love my place in the world. And uh, I don't want to do anything else for the rest of my life. Thank you. Heather Rosenquist went to a sleepover as a child, and there she encountered a mystery inside her own body that would take years to unravel. So I had my first alien experience when I was five years old. My best friend Anne had invited me for a sleepover. And do you guys remember your first sleepover? It's like a really big deal. Because not only do you have all of this unencumbered time with your best friend, you know, it's the first time you're sleeping away from your house. So it was a Friday night, and I was excited for the sleepover, but also because Friday night meant Dukes of Hazard. Don't, yeah, don't judge me. And it also meant, like, hours of listening to Duran Duran and also debating like was I going to marry John Taylor was I going to marry Simon Le Bon it didn't really matter which it was just you know one of the things we did um, my grandmother had even given me you know the jiffy pop that you pop over the stove it's not the microwave stuff but it pops up in this cloud of awesomeness so uh, I had that with me and that's not really important it's just the fact that it was another thing to mark like this you know monumental occasion so I packed my uh, strawberry shortcake PJs. I got my Star Wars sleeping bag because I was nothing if not well-rounded and went down to Anne's house. Everything was going swimmingly. You know, we watched uh, Dukes of Hazard, and then Hungry Like the Wolf was played, sung, and danced to. So things were going great. But sometime after the popcorn was popped, um, the alien appeared. Now, if you've heard of anyone having an alien experience, they may tell you that they, heard, they felt electrical sensations, or maybe there was this pressure that was on their chest, or they heard like uh, electronic sounds. Um, so my alien really wasn't like that. What it was instead was this burning sensation in my sacrum that shot up my spine, out through my shoulders and into my hands. It kind of took over my whole body. The alien sort of like consumed everything. And um, I couldn't think of anything else. Um, it was just this, this sense of dread. And um, quickly, it went to my stomach. I ran to the bathroom and, and threw up. And that is a slumber party killer. So, um, I remember, you know, my mom took me home, and I remember laying in bed that night thinking, you know, trying to process it in my five-year-old brain. Like, what just happened? Um, I knew I wasn't sick to my stomach, like I had a flu or something like that, but I didn't really want to recognize sort of the otherness or, or the, the alien that I felt. So I sort of chalked it up to, you know, bad popcorn and, and moved on. The next time I experienced it was after my beloved grandmother had passed away. I was about nine years old, 
And I remember being in the funeral procession past uh, the Houston Galleria area, and people were dining in patio restaurants and walking their dogs and just generally living their life. And my world had, in a word, just completely ended. And I just couldn't process how these people, how the world was still turning if my grandmother was in the ground. So it wasn't immediately after that, but right when sort of a semblance of normalcy returned, so did the alien. And this time, it convinced me that I couldn't swallow. So after a couple of days, if I did swallow, I thought I was going to choke to death. And after a couple of days of that, uh, my parents obviously took me to the doctor. They said, you know, your swallowing mechanism is fine. Um, just remember to, like, chew your food. So, yeah. So um, the alien then hooked into chew your food and thus began the masticating each bite 150 times. Super fun. And so um, as a child, I didn't like chewing my French fry to liquid. And much to everyone's chagrin who was dining with me, no one really wants to watch a child chew their food as if their life depends on it which what I thought, that's what I thought was happening, that my life actually did depend on it. Um, fast forward a few years, each time these episodes sort of like go away and then, you know, a couple of years later they, they pop back up. This time I was in sixth grade and in theater and our teacher said, you can do a two minute speech on anything. So, you know, there was a lot of Super, Super Mario Brothers speeches. There was Houston Astros. Um, thank you. Um, horse riding. Ah, oh, five minutes. And, um, and so I did mine on, I think, bottlenose dolphins. But this lady, a uh, young girl, you know, sixth grader, comes up dressed all in black, had black eyeliner on, eyeliner on, which is very scandalous for a sixth grader. And um, I was kind of a goody-goody, if you can't tell. And so, um, and she talked about suicide. And the word was so scary and so tragic, and that horrible possibility locked into my mind. So I remember going home and telling my mom, and of course she took me to therapy, um, <laughs> as, as you should. And, you know, they just said, listen, um, you know, that alien that you're describing has a name, and it's called obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. And um, usually this neurologically based anxiety disorder has, um, you know, in, in, intrusive thoughts that are usually around like religion, violence, or sex. So yay! And then, um, and then compulsive behaviors. So while I, with suicide, I wasn't necessarily there wasn't physical compulsions. There was more just the cyclical thinking where your head is just locked in an, an idea. So. Um, I was relieved that I now had a name to the alien, but what was fun is then I was like, well, maybe I don't have OCD. Maybe I really am suicidal. Mom, do you think I have OCD? So that's called checking, which is yet another symptom of OCD. So, um, so OCD is cyclical. It, it's been in my life, um, usually around times of transition. And, you know, college was a doozy. And, um, but at college, when they suggested medication, um, you know, I didn't want to take medication. No one I knew had any mental health issues, and I certainly didn't be, want to be the one that had medication. Um, I was very well steeped in the stigma of mental health um, and mental illness. 
So it wasn't until my 20s that I said, you know what, I'm tired of toughing this out. I'm gonna go ahead and take antidepressants. And um, what I've learned is that for the outside observer, I'm not much different from whether I'm medicated or not medicated. But for me, it makes all the difference in the world and keeps the alien where it belongs, which is out of my world. Thanks, guys. Hill Snyder is a San Antonio artist and writer. He closes out this episode with a vivid memory of the 1980s. It was the smell of weed that first brought us together. (laughs) I was sitting in my car, shortening a joint by lighting one end on fire while dragging on the other. I was parked in West Austin on 35th Street, which dead ends at the gates of Laguna Gloria Art Museum. A good place to be doing what I was doing. He was walking by, heading for those gates, when four fingers of smoke beckoned him to be tapping on my window. It was the early 80s, and a certain Groover's understanding still held. Nothing had been remastered yet, and I was still someone who rented the occasional VCR from a (laughs) 7-Eleven, usually in the middle of the night. So the signals were still authentic, analog, happening now. I had once felt the magic driving down Congress Avenue at 3 a.m. Some guys in the car next to me were passing a number and gave me a look that suggested I roll down my window. Did. We drove all the way from the Capitol to the river, passing it back and forth between cars, (laughs) easing through the flashing lights without really stopping, just driving close and grinning. So he knew, and I knew, that he would climb in the passenger seat and partake. But it did take me by surprise when he removed his leg before shutting the door. I liked it that he felt that comfortable. As we passed the joint back and forth across the front seat, he told me about sliding into home. He'd been an American 19-year-old in Vietnam, and like all the other young inductees, He'd been taught to hit the dirt whenever he heard the sound of incoming mortar shells. On one particular day, a day he was on patrol, a day when he heard that sound, a different day than all the other days that he'd heard it, he went down just as he'd been trained to do. He slid. Then he was 12 years old and he was seeing himself sliding in, right foot first, crossing the plate, beating the incoming throw by a split second, just as he'd been trained to do. And as he went down, he could still hear the ball hitting the catcher's mitt too late. And the shell he was dodging hit close, but not close enough to do him any harm. 
I can picture it perfectly just as he described it. The heel of his right foot striking the edge of the plate first, his left leg tucked under his butt, his left hand trailing in the dirt, his right hand waving free in the air to signal the completion of the home run, the cloud of dust, the score, the bringing one in for the home team. And he was seeing it too, just like that, just like that in his mind the day he heard that sound and slid. He was seeing it with his 12-year-old eyes, but he didn't see the landmine that happened to be there, right there under home plate, right where he slid into home. His name was Jackson Tomorrow, an artist. I was thinking about him yesterday as I was making preparations to read this very short story, the one I'm about to read to you now. It's too long. In those days, we were two artists sitting on a porch. We would pass the time watching whatever happened to occur in our view. We rarely interrupted those times with words unless something random required it. But one afternoon, I said to him, Jackson, the next time I do a show, I'm going to call it if you don't like dogs and children, go fuck yourself. <laughs> he thought about it. After a good while, he said, no, it's too long. Just call it go fuck yourself. <laughs> Storytellers you just heard receive guidance from story coaches Bergen Streetman, Drew Hicks, and Greg Jefferson. We'll be holding live storytelling events again as soon as it's safe to do so. If you have a story to tell, or you know someone with a great story, get in touch with us at tpr.org. Worth Repeating events are produced by Paul Flav and Kim Johnson, and the podcast is produced by Ben Henry. Our news director is Dan Katz. Production assistance from Rob Martinez and Kyle Perez. Bobby Salucha is TPR's Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Joyce Slocum is TPR's President and CEO. I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson. Talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.